Welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers, leaders, and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master. Listen and get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, and this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product masters. We do that with practical knowledge, that leads to more influence, and with influence, we get more confidence too. And we do that so we can create products that our customers love. That's why a lot of us actually love product management is because we get to create something new that others value. Now, my guest is going to talk about innovation and how companies need to be more effective in their innovation efforts. And he does that with a five-step process. You'll hear the details in the discussion, but the five steps are called sourcing, curation, discovery, incubation, and transition. He created this process as an Army colonel and former director of Army's Rapid Equipping Force, where he deployed a record 170 new products. He was leading innovation in the challenging environments of Iraq and Afghanistan battlefields. Wow. Now he's improving innovation effectiveness in companies, and his name is Pete Newell. He's also working with Steve Blank on a book to capture and share innovation process. But before that book is published, you can get the key insights now just by listening to the discussion. And remember, we also take notes for you. So if you rather read the details or share those with your colleagues, that's really easy. Just go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 286, and you'll find the written details of all the key points. Also, I asked him another question that did not make it into the interview, but you'll find his response written in the show notes for this episode. That question was, are there changes you are making to your innovation process we're using it during crisis times, right? During this time of crisis that we've been through because of COVID. And for his answer, just go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 286. It's part of that written summary that we provide on everything we talked about. Now, let's talk with Pete. Pete, thanks so much for joining the Everyday Innovators. Nate, thanks more for the invite. Absolutely. Glad we got connected. This came about because I was seeking a connection to Steve Blank, and you and him have been doing a lot of work together. So uh, very glad we can talk as well. Uh, I'm fortunate that that Steve and I, you know, accidentally bumped into each other about five years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We we've been closely entwined around the subject of innovation and entrepreneurship ever since. Excellent. It's a good group to be part of, I'm sure. The people that you get to help and that you get to work with. And speaking of innovation, I would like to dive into what your innovation process looks like, and so we can all learn from that. Awesome. And we'll think a little bit too. I'll, I'll ask you a question later about how. That kind of applies during a time of crisis, as many people, uh, you know, we're all living through now. Sure. Uh, first, it would be useful just to get grounded. There's lots of definitions of innovation. How do you think about innovation? So I look at innovation as actually the 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 delivery of something that either changes people's lives or, or significantly changes the way a business line is done. Um, one of the things you'll you'll find, I think, that both Steve and I are sync on is that. Nothing is an innovation until you actually deliver something to somebody that changes the way they behave or solves a problem for them, and you're capable of scaling that to the level that you need to. Mm-hmm. So everything about innovation is really about what are all the linkages and processes that you have to go through to actually get to the point that you've delivered something. Um, you know, fortunately, yeah, I think so often people get get wrapped up around. Um, the processes and the methodologies and uh, the, the smaller things without looking at what the end state is significantly change somebody's life. Yeah, I, I like that. that. That's a good, concise way to put it. Change someone's life, significantly change the business. 
I often talk about in some terms of value transfer, right? We're trying to create value sure. for yeah. uh, someone and receive value in exchange for that, right? So like we're selling your product. Yeah. Excellent. And you and Steve actually wrote a article, I think this was uh, maybe a couple of years ago now, that was in uh, Harvard Business Review about your innovation process. It may have evolved sure. a little bit since then. But uh, I thought uh, you, I'll put a link to that uh, so people can refer to that as well in the show notes here. But maybe you can just take us through that, uh, where we start with, uh, if we want to help a group or organization with innovation, what your process looks like. Sure. So, you know, one of the, you know, in the early days, Steve and I met, uh, Steve had already, he was teaching a lean methodology quite some time. And I was coming off the battlefields of Afghanistan and Iraq and Steve and I found that, that we both looked at this process of innovation almost identically. Uh, in, in fact, although we spoke different languages, when we draw out the processes we were doing, we found that the boards looked alike. Huh. As, as we spent time together and as we've actually worked um, in, with you know, large enterprise organizations and, and actually saw some things, we realized that there is a process which has five distinct stages and that as, as time has gone on, there is what we would call an operating system hmm. that allows all the different methodologies and decision points and data and things to be connected so you can actually ensure um, an adequate um, throughput of, of the five stages in order to ensure that you always have something innovative coming out the far end. So okay. it starts with you know, the first stage is, is how you source uh, people, ideas, problems, and technologies. Just how do you find stuff out there broadly? And I, I liken it to hackathons are great ways to source people. You can throw a problem or a challenge out there and you get a lot of people in the room real quickly and it's really good for collecting people. It's not great for finding a perfect solution to something. So we go from sourcing into an environment that allows you to create um, collisions between the people and the technology and the ideas and the problems and to the point where you can actually see um, globs of things starting to come together. Huh. And, and they look like they're worth pulling out of that sourcing stage and moving to what we would call curation. And by curation, we, we really focus on problems. Um, is, is taking a problem and disaggregating something complex down into much um, smaller issues and then looking at it in the you know the stack of problems and saying, how do I prioritize these in terms of what's the most valuable to solve? What has the biggest impact? What can I do in the near term that has some impact? And do I have to do it versus somebody else? So that's that process of prioritization. But the process of curation also allows you to look critically at the problem and the team around the problem. Do I have the right people? Do I have the expert in the problem? Uh, do I have the senior leader champion of the problem who has the resources required to do something about this problem if I come up with a solution? So, so you're essentially grading what you have on this curation pile, um, both in terms of its value to solve and your ability to build a team around it to actually move it forward. And then there's a decision process and then it says, okay, you know, this is highly valuable and this is ready. I'm going to be moving it to my um, discovery platform. Hmm. The third stage is discovery. And, and that's where uh, we essentially have taken uh, Steve's lean methodology and Alex Osterwalder's business model canvas, value proposition canvases, the mission model canvas, if you're working in the, 
the government space and built a very disciplined process of the first validating that you're working on the right problem and that you define the problem correctly and you understand the mission parameters that define whether you solved it or not according to the customer or the beneficiaries. And this is without talking business models or anything else. It's just, do you have the right problem? And and can you define what success looks like in terms of solving it? And do you know who you're actually solving it for? Mm-hmm. You then move to, as I talked, the left side of the business model campus, and that's you know, prove that you have a viable solution and a way of actually deploying that solution to the beneficiary of customers so that they can actually use it. And then the last part of it is, is a, is a cost ratio feasible? That discovery phase is really the, the first steps in, in deciding um, whether or not you actually have an investable thing. Is it worth spending time and energy on this to solve? And do I have the right team built? And do I have the nascent pathways by which I'm actually going to move this further down the pipeline? The fourth stage is actually incubation. And we kind of grade incubation in, in three terms. Um, first is, do we understand the technology involved in, in solving the problem? Yeah, and, and I think everybody's um, familiar with technology readiness levels. But we go from nail the TRL so you know exactly where you're at to an investment readiness level, which means do I have the right team and do they have the capacity to actually deliver the solution at scale? And in the NASA stages of things, the answer is almost always no. And you have to solve for it. Now, who do I add to this team? What help do they need in terms of uh, technical expertise or IP or something else? But by trying to get them to the point that they're investable, or I put real capital into them, they're going to move. The last one is what we've introduced is the adoption readiness level. And by adoption readiness, it means I've identified who the first customer is and who the second. And as I scale it, I know who the team is going to engage with the technology, the solution, and actually to, to get the prototypes turned into something usable, to get user feedback to help them improve their product and help them understand um, the delivery channels by which they get it out. So the incubation stage, you're really after those three things, TRL, IRL, and ARL. And then the final stage is, um, quite frankly, is transition. Is, is how do I transition this back into the business or if it's a government organization into a program or record so that it scales? And that means it, it really does. It scales appropriately, which means it's sent to the right people, but it's, it's sustainable. We can train people to work on it. We can keep updating it the way we have to. So the way we look at it is you don't have an innovation until you've actually transitioned something into that environment. Everything you do prior to that is teaching you a lesson about the problem, about the people and the items and the area required to solve it and the pathway by which you're going to get out there. It's all necessary, which is why you have to be able to introduce lots of different methodologies and activities to ensure that your your pipeline of innovation continues to flow. I know that's a very long answer to your question. Well, and it's also the platform for, or the foundation for everything else we want to talk about, right? So that was wonderful to hear what the process is. We'll get back to talking with Pete in just a minute, but I want to tell you something that I've observed over the last year. Every organization I've talked with, they share that they want to invest in their product managers and help them be more effective. And that is so very exciting to see. It is a change. I've talked about product managers being huge levers in companies for a long time. 
And now it's exciting to see organizations recognize that too and starting to invest in it. And how do you invest in your product managers? I'll tell you what Motorola did. They used my RPM experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. We started with a single pilot group and expanded it to all of their product managers. Here's a quote from the director of product management who brought me in to help them. He said, I had to get my team performing well for a high stakes, tight deadlines product project. I wanted a full perspective and not narrow focuses that others provide. The RPM experience delivered and now we have expanded it to all product managers. I recommend it to anyone. I was so thankful to work with them and see how the RPM experience really did enhance their product management capability. It equips product managers and product teams for higher performance. Let's talk about what it can do for your organization as well. Get the details at theeverydayinnovator.com slash RPM. It worked for Motorola and it will work for you too. Now, let's talk with Pete some more. And just make sure I got these right, where you start with innovation sourcing. We do curation, we do discovery, incubation, and transition. Are those the five Correct. stages? Okay. So five stages, yeah. Great. Let me take you back through some of these and ask you a few questions about these. So the sourcing is coming up with the ideas, looking at the people that are involved, right, gathering them, the problems, the technology, kind of the, the resources available. And you mentioned hackathons as one tool for this. Um, are there other tools that you find that are, um, and let me give you context. Let's say it's an organization that is new to, it, it, they all, all say that innovation is important, right? But let's say it's an organization that is new to trying to embrace some kind of methodology that they can repeat. And maybe they say, okay, maybe we'll do a once a year hackathon and we'll start there. Um, what are some other things that they might do to source source innovation? So I, I think the... Yeah, one hackathons is interesting in terms of sourcing um, people and just either whether it's inside the organization or externally. Um, having uh, a team of folks that actively trained uh, to source problems. That one of the tools that my company actually built is we saw this as an issue was what we call a problem sourcing seminar, where we teach people how to go into their organizations in a very um, disciplined manner and pull out the information needed to create a viable problem and actually grade them in terms of whether they're worth moving along. So problem mm -hmm. sourcing seminars or the, the ability to source problems is, is critical to this. The, um, um, any, and I would say anybody's involved in entrepreneurship centers that's looking at tech and, you know, tech scouting, um, going to conventions and places, Anywhere that gives you an opportunity to actually talk to people about what they're working on or about what their problems are is an opportunity to collect things. Yep. The question is, when you collect all that stuff from multiple places, what do you do with it? Mm -hmm. And that seems to be really hard for people is, now what do I do? I have the data, but I don't know what analysis I'm supposed to do that produces a product that allows somebody in my organization to make a decision about what goes next. Mm -hmm. Okay. So for example, in an organization, one place we might source problems from would be if we have good relationships with the salespeople, right? So this audience is product managers. And ideally, the salespeople are out there listening for problems and hopefully engaging us some of the time. So we might hear problems straight from the customer. We might also have employees that are interacting with the customers or just seeing problems in the business. And they're the ones saying, hey, here's a problem that we need some help. Um, yeah. So we have these ideas. And now we need to do something with them. And is that where the curation takes takes effect? Is we're trying to organize the 
problems or insights or ideas in a manner that now we can take action on them? I, I think that it's, it's kind of a, a little longer process, but, mm-hmm. but yes, that, that's essentially correct. And, and let me give you the scenario. I, Great. We can often take a series of problems from an organization. For, let's take a government organization because they're the hardest sometimes. I can take a really hard government problem and have a team of people disaggregate it, which means boil it down to as most um, the smallest components we can and look at the technologies associated with a problem. And kind of what we're looking for is, is if a component of a problem deals with a technology that's rapidly changing, which means every six months it changes, we can almost guarantee that the basis for that problem will change before you solve it. Which means once you deliver a solution, it'll be obsolete. And those are the types of relationships we're trying to define in this process. Um, for instance, and the, and the way we do this is we actually bring in the government expert on the problem. And we sit them in a room with our folks who are good translators to say, we're going to take all the government speak from this and we're going to write it in plain English so that it makes sense to commercial people. Now, once we're done with that, we have a new version of the problem. That's translation number one. Um, we then do some pretty good market research on the companies that are working in the space where that technology is. And, and we essentially create a series of collider sessions. And by collider, it means the government guy is coming in to talk about his problem. And the companies will talk about the way they see that problem and the technology around it. It's not a pitch session for a solution. It, it really is a brutally honest conversation about the government saying, I, I have this, this particular cyber problem. And somebody from Visa's cyber strategy office looking at it saying, that's not the problem. We right. solved that one, but the problem's really something else. You need to look at these things. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of that, you can actually sit with a quad chart sometimes and say, of all the things you saw, what's most important now and what's most relevant? And, and you can decide whether is, is my next best step going after a near-term solution that has a moderate impact because I need to show success, or do I want to go for a moonshot? Hmm. And that really kind of determines your pathway coming out of curation of what types of people do I need to gather and what platform am I moving it to to actually do discovery. And that's really the heart of that curation process. Good. Okay, so uh, lots of good depth there about how we put this together. Um, and I, I liked what you talked about. Uh, what, did you call it a collider session? I, yeah, I call them collider sessions. Okay. We, you know, some uh, people call them. People and ideas are colliding, right? Yep. Yeah, get that. We're sitting okay. across the table from each other. Yeah, right. And, and, and we're talking about, you know, what we agree on, what we disagree on. Yeah. And taking time for that is really important. Um, there's a tool called Action Learning that uh, I've got exposed to and used it for, in, for the same sort of thing. And it's the person that has a description of the problem they're sharing their perspective of the problem. You have a small handful of other people in the room who are really just listening and asking questions at times to try to uncover what is the real problem. And we often end up in a different place than we start, right? Because the problem wasn't framed in a way that is actually solving, as you said, you know, the root issue. Yep. Uh, yeah. We're focused on something else. And even just going through that process, sometimes the problem unravels itself because we look at it properly. You, you learn some fascinating things from it. I, and I tell people, no problem has ever survived first contact in this process in its original mm-hmm. form, never, um, which, which tells you something about um, what happens in large organizations when they try and solve things without going through this process. It's almost guaranteed that they're expending energy trying to solve the wrong problem or they're solving the right problem, but the process by which they do it takes so long 
that that problem will change so significantly by the time they get there that it's no longer relevant. Right. Which both of those things consume resources and assets that create what we call innovation exhaustion. It's hmm. a good phrase. Um, within this curation aspect, so fundamentally, I'm thinking about we're coming up with new ideas from multiple multiple inputs, and now we're trying to decide what to do with these. And one in my mind, one thing that's happening is we're trying to decide where's the best bet for our resources. You know, which which problem do we run with? You know, which idea do we try to develop? Where do you have prioritization fitting into this? Is that in curation, or do, do you move into discovery and then try to do some prioritization exercise to figure out what to work on? It starts in um, curation. Okay. Because as you're looking at prioritization, it really comes down to you know if I'm looking at ten things. Um, and three of those things are like, these are near term. They're more like incremental improvement to something. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that they're not value added, but, but there may be a specific team in my organization that handles that, that me as the, the innovation platform, I don't have to do that because a business unit, they can take this and run with it and they're good. Um, there are other things that depending on the, I'll call the risk acceptance of my organization, may be literally moonshots or they may be um, uh, highly impact in a very narrow sector or they may be moderately impact in a much larger sector. But but whatever way you look at those things, your prioritization tells you first, it helps you understand why you're working on what. What, what is the expected outcome? Mm-hmm. The second pass at it you want to look at is the quality of the team and the problem in the pathways that you have to move to the next step. For instance, I can I give you a problem for an example and say, if you were the problem owner of a cyber problem and you've been in your job for five years and were the world's expert and you'd actually an operator that knew this, I'd say that that's a major positive. But if the next thing you said is, and I'm moving out of my job in six months, it's a major negative hmm. because in the middle of this project, you're going away. The same with your senior leaders, same with some of the other things. So you now have to look at those problems and say, you might have the most highest priority, best problem, but you don't have the best team wrapped around it. And you're not ready to move to the platform yet. Right. And if I moved you to the platform, you would consume resources and other things at a rate much greater than everyone else and still not achieve what you were after. Mm-hmm. So there's a second pass on prioritization that you have to go through uh, before you start to consume your resources. You want the best, most ready things moving to the next step. That's how you ensure throughput through your innovation um, pipeline. Okay. <clears throat> All kinds of can of worms I could open up on that one too. Um, but okay. the, the best, most ready things, I, I like how you position that. This does not always, as you said then, does not always mean necessarily the things that might be in the long run best for the organization. It's the things that create the most value that we can accomplish right now. Right? True. Um, and when, so one thing that comes up with organizations, <laughs> we seem to all have this problem. Uh, we have project envy in some sense that we always like to do more projects, get these things created. And then we look yeah. around and all of a sudden we have all of our people working on 10 things at one time and hardly anything is getting done. Right. So in this prioritization, you're, you're looking at the best resources available, the timeline that they're available and saying, what can we get done the soonest that's going to help our organization? Is that right? Correct. Okay. Okay. And focus energy on that. And focus energy often helps to eliminate waste in other places. Okay. Yeah. So that was a little bit about, go ahead. I was going to say, because you're, you're a discovery platform, you know, that next step, 
is um, it's an exhaustive process. It, it consumes, it's not a, an expensive in terms of dollars. It consumes people. It's right. a human capital intensive. You know, get out of the building, you're going to do 100 interviews, then you're going to build, you know, 100 MVPs of things. It's a, a human capital and time intensive period uh-huh. that can last anywhere from three weeks to three months. And you're talking about pulling people out of their jobs and away from whatever they were doing in order to do this. That it has you. You really want to make sure when you do that that you stand the best chance of of generating a great learning environment of, for what they accomplish while they're there. Okay. What do you find that's helpful at that discovery stage? Uh, so let me give you another scenario. So let's say we went through curation. Maybe we came into a curation activity and uh, there's an uh, interview that I did very early in this podcast on, uh, I think it's called Water of Life. Nonprofit Compassion International created a, a, a simple water filter to help people have fresh water places where they did otherwise. Mm-hmm. And they went through a hackathon sort of thing, um, an event to generate ideas, and came up with something like 2,400 ideas. They smushed those together, right? Synthesized things. So in curation, maybe we're down to um, 10 things that we want to go after. We have 10 concepts for products, and we want to pursue those. Um, And we prioritize them kind of all the same level at the moment. Do we bring all those into discovery if we had the resources and try to build a business canvas for each one, do 100 interviews on each one, create an MVP for each one. Um, is, is that the sort of thing we're talking about? Uh, and maybe you might say we need to prioritize better and just focus our energy on one. Do you find it helpful in discovery to run multiple ideas at one time or just focus on one? No, I, actually, I think running multiple, the symptoms of energy are running multiples at one time. It's actually kind of a bet, but I think the the discipline of doing discovery like that uh, actually helps to have different people looking at things. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, Steve and I still teach at Stanford together a, a hacking for defense class. Mm-hmm. And in that class, we have eight teams working eight different problems over a ten week or ten week period. Um, there's a lot of learning going on just listening to different teams and looking at how they approach different interviews and they built their MVPs. The collective learning environment is is phenomenal. Yep. Um, I, I would just say it, it, it's rare that everything that's curated and prioritized makes the cut to go to discovery. Right. It, it just generally resources aren't there to to do things. Yeah. Um, I give you an example. Over time, we actually keep this data. Uh, if I started with a thousand things being curated, and I'm constantly doing it, uh, I probably end up with um, maybe. 400 curatable things and out of those 400 maybe a hundred would make it to discovery huh. and it it's almost if you backward plan and look at it if i want one thing a year to actually transition as a as a as an innovation i need to have at least four things in incubation and to get four things in incubation it means my discovery phase has got to have at least 16 things in it constantly and to get the 16 and its levels of four, right? that data actually plays out pretty well in virtually all the systems we look at. Okay. That's helpful. Um, and I know you, you do some work with Alex Osterwalder as well. And he, um, I talked with him recently on this topic, and he has those you know, same approach, right? The, you basically need so many things going into the funnel to know that you're going to end yep. up with one thing that will transition at the end. 
Um, and it's addressed in his book, which should be out now, I think like this week, maybe it was supposed to hit mid-April. So there, there's a new book, uh, The uh, Invincible Company, I believe is the title. Um, it is. You know, Alex has got some fascinating thoughts on um, on portfolio management. Mm-hmm. And this is something we're finding is a, a major weakness in, in big organizations. It's, they look at it, um, portfolios in terms of projects or things, but they don't necessarily look at a portfolio of problems. So the portfolios are designed around um, incubation and transition, but there's not a problem portfolio owner out there that's, whose job it is to ensure that there's fresh content constantly flowing into the system. Right. Uh, Alex and I differ a little bit in the concept, but but I actually credit him with with actually raising the specter of this portfolio management thing is is essentially missing in the culture of innovation management. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. And, and in discovery, you're helping to push forward the things that have the best chance of making making it through to sure. transition. And you're doing yeah. that. It sounds like you haven't used the experiment language yet, but that's what I'm picking up on. That you know, you're creating a business model canvas to, to kind of be an early business case. You're doing the 100 interviews, you know, just like Steve Blank always talks about, and creating the MVP. Um, and you're you're setting up experiments to now know, okay, of those, you gave some numbers, you know, maybe there's 16 projects going into discovery. Uh, we run our experiments to try to select those four that deserve to carry on into incubation. Yep. That's right. Okay. Yeah, correct. Okay. And then incubation, things are made more real. And once we make things more real... We transition to something that we can maintain, operate going forward, optimize optimization, and turn it over to the business. It sounds like you know, transition it or transition yeah, it to an external organization. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. A lot of my early work was um, we, we were involved in some tech tech transfer activities, right? That you were alluding to before, sure. you know, so- solving a problem for the government that then got transitioned into uh, the commercial world. Yeah. So, okay. Um, really helpful. I love hearing about innovation processes. Uh, I like seeing the common threads between processes because as you position this, innovation is a process. It's something that organizations sure purposefully do and not wonder how it gets done. So I appreciate you sharing what uh, you have put together there and the work that uh, you're doing with, with Steve Blank on that. And as listeners know, I like an innovation quote, and I asked you to share one with us. Can you tell us what that is? So innovation is a full contact sport. And which means if you're comfortable, you're not doing it right. You're going to get a little bruised along the way, huh? Yeah, it, it, you know, I, I have this discussion in the class with the students all the time. And, you know, everybody comes in and say, we pivoted today. And I look at them and I said, why are you all happy? Because every time, you know, as a, as a business leader, every time I've done a pivot, there's been somebody throwing up in the corner. They were so scared about it. It's, it's trying to get people to understand that, that if you're innovating and you're really pushing the edge, it's a really scary, uncomfortable place. Mm-hmm. So as much as we'd like to make it easy and do anything else, um, we're trying to build this common culture and a system and a process in order to help us get the bigger and better things faster so that we can keep up with the world. But if it's easy, they're probably not innovating. Right. Doing something new makes us uncomfortable. And innovation is about creating new value, solving a problem that hasn't been solved yet. And new is uncomfortable. So I like that. That's a great quote. Um, it's not, uh, it's from you, but I haven't heard innovation expressed that way before, right? Full contact sport. So it will be one that I will steal from you. I'll give you credit, but I'm going to make use of it. I'll take it. I'll take Very it. Very good. So how can people find out about the work that you're doing these days? 
Um, you know, first and foremost, you can visit uh, our website at uh, bmnt.com. Uh, and in fact, if you go straight to the insights page, you can see the collection of stories. We tend to write a lot. Uh, we write about the things we learn. We write about the successes uh, that folks we work with have. Mm -hmm. uh, we're really focused on outcomes. So whenever we have an aha moment, we go back and do a deep dive into what happened. And we tend to write about that and share it with people. So first and foremost, you go there. Um, if you're interested in the hacking for defense programs or hacking for oceans, we have a, a nonprofit called the Common Mission Project, which is focused on promoting mission-driven entrepreneurship uh, internationally. And, and the Common Mission Project actually houses hacking for defense and our academic programs and some other things. And you can find them at, at commonmission.us. Okay. The two places that's a starting point, uh, you can always find me on LinkedIn, and you can find our articles you know, kind of proliferating between Harvard Business Review and Inc. and Forbes and, and lots of other places. Excellent. And you talked about the Common Mission Project and the hacking for activities, right? So um, hacking for defense, hacking for is there entrepreneurship? Oceans. Ocean, okay. Um, Energy, diplomacy, uh, pick, pick your issue. Yep. And, and this is a, an effort that you're spreading out to universities. So there's a number of universities teaching these programs now, correct? Sure. There were um, 30 universities in the United States who taught Hacking for Defense this year. Uh, it was taught in four in the United Kingdom. I think it's next year it'll be 40 in the United States, seven in the United Kingdom. Uh, we have two universities uh, on the West Coast teaching hacking for oceans this year. And then there's uh, a couple of what I would call cross-domain platforms. Uh, James Madison University of Virginia uh, teaches uh, hacking for defense, hacking for diplomacy, and a couple of other things to kind of uh, combine for their students. Um, we are uh, discussing with the Department of Homeland Security uh, piloting a hacking for the homeland security hmm. to start next fall. Uh, we hope to see that one come together here in the next couple of weeks, and you know, we'll see where it goes after that. But but the cool part is we have a network of 60 or 70 universities and instructors and mentors and alumni and other folks who now understand this common methodology, uh, who are working closely with students who are proliferating different companies and businesses in the government who now speak a common language for innovation. Right. And I really appreciate that. The work that you've done to, in a very real sense, give back to the community, help spread the ideas and make take some of the mystery out of innovation that people often approach it with, um, that it's a process. And now there's lots of universities teaching the process and lots of people learning the process. Yep. So, Absolutely. Thank you for that, Pete. I will put links to all that information in the show notes so listeners can find that easily. And I very much appreciate you being part of the podcast. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product managers become product masters. We do that with practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. And you can get all that right here. To get a summary of everything that Pete just shared with us, go to theeverydayinnovator.com slash 268. The best thing that you can do to help support this podcast is just to tell other product managers and innovators about it. A great way of doing that is sharing those show notes. If you hear something that's of interest to you, send that link on over to them. Again, that link for this one is theeverydayinnovator.com slash 268. As always, keep innovating. 
Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit TheEverydayInnovator.com.